0: another episode of the SS Cinephile, where we talk about and dissect movies that have made us into the people we are today. We are your hosts. Andrew
1: Meixner, resident composer.
2: I am Edward Pronley, our resident writer.
0: And me, Jacob Meixner, the hostess with the mostest. Today, we are going to try something a bit different. To be fair, this is only our second episode, so it's all pretty fresh. We strangely didn't watch the same movie, sort of. Blade Runner has an interesting history of having many, many different versions, so we each picked one to come together and compare and contrast and talk about what we liked and unfortunately what we didn't. Blade Runner is based off a Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, where it delves heavily into the question of what it means to be human. It's directed by Ridley Scott, and it's a screenplay by Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples. So we already talked a little bit about what we did here. Um, Edward, uh, you you watched the theatrical release, which was the first one to actually be released. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yes. So the theatrical release was done in 1982, and the the biggest thing that sets it apart from all the other cuts is the voiceover that Harrison Ford's character Deckard has throughout the entire film. What's really interesting about this voiceover is that it is terrible. It's, <laughs> it, it is not done well it is not delivered well and it kind of just dumps a lot of exposition onto the audience that isn't necessarily needed as we see in the other cuts of the film basically what happened was is that the studio watched the film and said we don't understand what's going on and they said the audience isn't going to understand what's going on and they had Harrison Ford go back and record a whole bunch of voiceovers Kind of lending to that noir genre they were going for. So it in a sense, it could have fit, but it did not fit the way it was officially done. And, and what in the project?
0: What about it made it that it so that it didn't fit in the project or it didn't feel right?
2: It did something about watching the movie, you definitely feel as though the voiceover was tacked on. it's It's very interesting because I've heard a lot of people say that voiceovers in films, generally aren't supposed to be there. So when, like, if you're writing a script for a movie, if you have an idea for a movie, it's a cliche to, like, start it off with a voiceover. But truth be told, that actually is kind of a sign of, like, an amateur writer, an amateur filmmaker, because voiceovers are meant for exactly what they were used for in Blade Runner's case, which is just to give a helping hand to the plot of the film so that audiences aren't confused. And in the case of of the theatrical release of Blade Runner, that's exactly what it was intended for. And Harrison Ford's delivery of it is also a little bit, it it doesn't even feel like he's in character. It just feels like he's reading off a page as he's delivering these voiceovers to you, which is not to discredit Harrison Ford's acting ability. In fact, I believe he said, I went kicking and screaming to the studio to record it uh, when talking about the voiceover later on.
0: He he really did the voiceover, apparently
2: yes it was not it just it just was not great and i think he he even knew it it was not adding to the film maybe it was just to get back at the studio for his poor delivery maybe it was just the lines themselves um or maybe it had nothing to do with that and it was just harrison ford himself but yeah it it it's definitely the biggest thing that stands out from this release because I this was actually not the first release I'd seen. I'd seen the final cut, which we'll talk about later, which does not have that in it. But it definitely subtracts from the film, and it also really hurt it financially and critically when it was first released.
0: Yeah, it it, uh, it did terrible in the box office, didn't it?
2: Yeah, it it only it, it had a budget of thirty million, and in its its opening. In its its summer box office, sorry, not its opening weekend. Its summer box office only grossed twenty six million of that thirty million, Oof. so it didn't even meet the budget that it had that's, as it was in the theaters for the summer.
0: That's terrible.
2: And it had very poor critics, and some of it was due, in fact, to the voiceover. But a lot of the poor critics were actually. They couldn't stand how slow the plot was Hmm. it had been advertised as kind of an action-adventure film and it it did not deliver in that sense it was just a very (laughs) slow-paced movie
0: i I mean it's not really an action-adventure movie right
2: no not really Mm.
0: it's it's just not not exactly (laughs) there there are some exciting action moments but it's really it's not an action-adventure movie certainly not in the way that you would expect from like an action-adventure blockbuster for sure yeah Philip K. Dick, he he died three months before this movie was even released, right?
2: Yes, which is which is both terrible because it's, but it's also, I guess, good that he didn't see the film in its probably <laughs> worst version. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he did. He did die three months before the movie's release, which is, I mean, probably from just a writer's standpoint, it's got to be kind of sad. It's, a, it's, I mean, it's a sad story. You 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 write something that has the opportunity to be created for for the screen and uh and you are not able to see it and so it, it's definitely more of a, a sad story than an ironically funny one
0: well but in hindsight it's also kind of an ironically funny one uh, yes that, that is, <laughs> that <is. laughs> maybe, maybe that's just my own dark sense of humor i don't, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> well cool so uh, andrew you actually watched the director's cut right yeah so why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about that one
1: yeah, absolutely. So, as Edward was saying, it didn't get the the best reception, but over the 10 years until the director's cut that was released in 92, it was sort of slowly growing, and I think we were, while doing research, we were seeing that, like, some, like, different unauthorized versions were, like, edited together and, like, shown at film festivals and were... were a lot better received than the theatrical version and that led to the studio and eventually Ridley Scott himself to make a director's cut um, that fixed a lot of (laughs) a lot of the problems that people found with a theatrical release including Ridley Scott himself so he was able to sort of make a better version of of what was out there just like a quick bullet point list of like the the different aspects of this that that were changed is obviously the removal of the the much hated voiceover that edward was referring to and not only was it removed but because of its removal during these huge panning shots over the city it it allowed the music to play uh music by vangelis to me at least that's a very significant part of the movie itself it just it really fits and it really they go well together and when i think of one i think of the other so so it let that breathe and along with that breathing it allowed It allowed the movie to have its sort of own atmosphere because we're not being bombarded with dialogue and and voiceovers and exposition all the time. We're sort of just in the moment as it's happening. And then it gave some credence to a slightly more ambiguous viewing of the film. It removed the happy ending, uh, first of all, which a lot of people just sort of hated that it was just sort of weirdly tacked on at the end and no one really liked it it took that out making it more ambiguous to begin with but then it added uh dream sequences which some people have just thought of as dream sequences and other people have gotten deeper meanings out of them but they're in they're in this version for sure
0: Andrew what so what for our audience uh, who maybe haven't seen all three versions of this movie because I mean, we can't really expect that of anyone right we even the three of us didn't watch all three versions um, we did not or at least not not for this recording. Um, what what exactly is the happy ending like what how does that change the ending of the movie?
1: It's weirdly sort of how it sounds um the the Deckard and Rachel. Um, they, they, you know, they're running away together, sort of at the end of the movie. But the happy ending is is them driving off into the literal sunset on like a California vista, basically, and. Just driving away, showing that they escaped and everything was good and happy, and you know they presumably got married and lived to the end of their days. And it really, to me, and I think a lot of other people talking about it, it's it seemed really tacked on, like it, like, like it. This was the studio saying, "Hey, we can't end it on this weird ambiguous note. We need to figure out what happened to these characters." And so it was just thrown on the at the end. Yeah, that's that's really all it is. It's just them driving away.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's not not too much, but it, I, I I totally agree with what you said. It really really detracts from some of the nuanced ambiguity that was deliberately you know supposed to exist in the film, uh, vis-a-vis right. or Philip K. Dick.
1: Yeah, and and speak, speaking of the, you know, original source material, so they added these dream sequences as well that weren't in the theatrical release, uh, and they're, they're very short, like only a couple seconds long, and, and they're basically just of a unicorn running through the forest, which seems very random when you first encounter it because it's not in the same setting, there's nothing fantastical really about this, it's, you know, firmly in the sci-fi realm, so it's like, what is this unicorn doing there? But then it, it does tie, or seem to at least tie to something that is happening in the actual real world, uh, again giving it sort of something else to read into beyond they ran away and lived happily ever after.
0: Yeah, and that there's there's another tie in actually uh, with the unicorn and how that actually manifests itself in the in the film, right?
1: Yeah, with with the with the origami.
0: Yep, yep. That, that's that's what I'm thinking of at least, which kind of ties in or or doesn't tie in with the happy ending if you will Um.
1: right (laughs) (laughs) so then jacob you had the you had the what's called the final cut um yeah so
0: the final cut true to name is supposed to be the definitive final cut of this movie kind of the main reason that this exists is because ridley scott even though he had a hand in helping out the director's cut and i think it's I think we can all agree is, is a lot closer to his original vision. He still didn't have full control over it, and uh, I guess that just really you know kind of ticked him off. And so this one, really Scott did have full control over, and is fully blessed by him. Uh, over time, he kind of denounced and and said, "I want no part of the official director's cut released in 1992. Instead, here, watch my final cut." And this one was released in 2007, so it's uh, just a little over a decade old, actually, in terms of release. There are a few voiceover redos, just in, in some of like the dialogue um, that exists in the movie. This has nothing to do with the theatrical <laughs> releases voiceovers from Harrison Ford as Deckard. The unicorn scenes, the dream sequences that Andrew's is talking about, are a little bit longer and more drawn out, I think, to really kind of evoke their kind of mystical and, and almost confusing nature. And then the the kind of super well-regarded uh, Zora death scene when he's chasing her through the streets and shoots her several times in the back and, and she kind of crashes through the glass. That was apparently kind of reshot and recut. I don't know exactly how. I don't know if we did a ton of research into into the differences. I think that that would be kind of interesting to see how they, they those two recuts of that scene exist. Yeah. Um, hmm. But I can confirm in the final cut that I just recently watched, super impactful moment, you know you just couple shots in the back and it's like all slow-mo and she's like flying through several panes of glass into like you know a storefront window with all the fake snow in it and uh, Mm -hmm. you you got the Vangelis uh, kind of background music just cranking um, into the scene it's it it, I think it really kind of evokes this uh, film noir quality that Blade Runner was meant to embody. And we kind of teased a little bit the uh, film noir qualities of this film. Edward, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about what makes the what makes a film noir in the first place? What is what is a film noir film?
2: For sure, film noir is considered a, a genre film, which is something that kind of transpired or was created uh, way back in early Hollywood. So we had like the Westerns and we had noir films and they were basically kind of like when you went to a movie theater and you went to go see a noir film, you went to go see a Western film, you knew what you were getting into. You knew for like a Western, it'd be a hero who would come in and save the day and ride off into the sunset, kind of like the happy ending of Blade Runner. And if you went to a noir film, you knew it would be kind of like a lone male protagonist, probably just against some kind of corrupt system or some detective story or mystery that would kind of maybe not make you feel so good by the end of the film. And that's kind of what we're getting with Blade Runner as well, especially in the later cuts. So you have a lone male protagonist. He is kind of on a hunt. He is he's he basically represents, he embodies a private eye in this film, the mood and the the lighting of the film, too, also contribute greatly to noir, the mood being like kind of like this dark, eerie, raining all the time, cloudy skies, and the lighting being of this like high contrast of a lot of shadows and bright lights. The other biggest contribution to it being a noir film, though, is the femme fatale, which always leads to the male protagonist's destruction by the end of the film. Whether that be they, they fail the mystery, they get caught up in some kind of government conspiracy themselves and they are thrown in prison, they die. Or in the case of Blade Runner, they just kind of have a reversal of character, which throughout the entire film, Deckard is a killer. He kills replicants, uh, the robots, and the femme fatale who is the character of Rachel, ends up reversing his character's kind of whole M.O. when he decides not to kill her at the end and instead run away with her.
0: And she's actually running away from the law, right? The, the rules of the universe kind of prohibit her from existing long-term. And so in, exactly. in kind of a way, the system is already against her. And so the, the kind of the final moments of the movie are, are him trying to save her or, or kind of, you know, take those next steps i was kind of thinking about this while you were describing the whole film noir thing would it be fair to say that film noir is almost like a format defining genre it's like it's pretty unique to film and it actually even pretty unique to kind of an early period of film where we were still a little bit unsure how to create good movies and we we didn't have all the the special effects and all the practical effects that we've developed over the, the years and the ages is that is that kind of fair to say
2: it's, it's actually a really interesting thought, how it's kind of a format defining genre, because it is in terms of storytelling, in terms of the actual technology of, of making movies. This was kind of a highlight. I mean, they didn't have a lot. They didn't have, like you were saying, they didn't have a lot of special effects. All they had was story and they had lighting and they were able to create moods and create atmospheres. And this is probably like a what came first, a chicken or the egg situation. So I don't know, was it the mood and the lighting that brought in the stories of these dark government conspiracies, mysteries, murder, or was it vice versa? Was it, hey, we want to tell a murder mystery story. Should we use this lighting? That's, that's just a very interesting thought. And obviously the genre of noir has evolved and all genres are, are constantly evolving and creating like little micro genres of their own as we progress through film history but but yeah this this definitely was a format defining genre
0: we took note of a couple of famous film noir examples and even some more modern ones right we have in here uh, chinatown yeah uh, the maltese falcon and then uh, we even threw on here the dark knight which is i mean that's just a a totally dark movie right both aesthetically and kind of thematically and then uh, captain america winter soldier uh, also a pretty dark movie Again, aesthetically as well as thematically.
1: Yeah, the whole plot is conspiracy-based in that one,
2: and a lone male protagonist with Black Widow, of course, throughout the entire movie. But generally, it's you know it's Captain America's quote-unquote film, and so it's it's right. him against the Hydra.
0: We're talking about kind of the the aesthetics of the the film, the cinematography. What about the universe? Um, let's talk a little bit about the the universe of Blade Runner and the aesthetics around that universe uh, Andrew you want to tee us up
1: yeah so just speaking of the look of everything that we got going on there's obvious influence of, of film noir but it's not in the same time period both, <laughs> both movie wise and setting wise as those other movies and so I think bringing it out of that, Ridley Scott was able to make so many different aesthetic choices that really stand out to me. I mean, they stood out to me when I first watched it, and they still stand out as very unique examples of this world that was built almost. It is also interesting to note that the film takes place in 2019, which then was the future. Now is a year ago. Um, so it's interesting to see like what did happen or what uh, definitely did not happen. A lot of things um, did not happen. <laughs> a lot of things did not happen. Uh, we do not have androids, for one. Siri is the closest
2: thing that we got. Siri
0: is pretty weird. You ever have it like uh, ask you for something and you're like, no, I'm not even talking to you. Like what? Get, get out of here. <laughs>
2: yeah, but just imagine in like 10 years we have Blade Runners trying to track down all the Siri's <laughs> little... <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: destroy (laughs) series. But uh, I think along along with the aesthetics, the one like specific, this is very specific, but the one thing that always stood out to me is because the the world of L.A. in, in this version of 2019 is perpetually dark, right? And whether that's from lack of sunlight or just over pollution or whatever it is, we know it's basically essentially nighttime and raining the entire time. But because of that, they invented this umbrella... That is, you know, very commonplace to be out and about. But they invented um, an umbrella that's also a flashlight. The pole itself is lighting up, almost like a lightsaber, basically. And it's just a multifunction tool at that point. And it, I just remember seeing that, you know, as a kid and being like, "Wow, we don't have that at all." But it definitely makes sense for this universe <laughs> just because of what they built around it. And that's what I mean by aesthetics. It's just all these small things that are put together to make a different world, even though it is supposed to take place in a, in a place that we all know actually exists. So I always thought I always thought that was really interesting. And there's a bunch of examples of stuff like that. Do you guys got any? Well,
0: first, I'm actually kind of curious about this, uh, this flashlight umbrella. Did you ever uh, do the research? Can, can we buy one of those now? I feel like that, that probably does exist. I imagine
1: someone has made it, if not mass-produced. That'd be kind of
0: cool. I, I, I almost want to own one of those. You know, I I don't have. I, it does, it exist. does exist. It, it does, does exist. It
1: does exist. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. Actually, they're not that. Ooh, there there I you go. It, there so. you go. There's a there's there a collectible you for you. Yeah, everybody <laughs> buy one.
0: Um, you know, I don't have any any real tangible examples. I do really like the kind of the world building that they do with all of the, the commotion that's going on in the street. They, they clearly, uh, and I think they do a really excellent job of kind of painting this picture of an overcrowded L.A. where they have like kind of cars and people all kind of commingling. And it's almost got this like off world kind of grungy aesthetic where like if you're if you're one of the privileged people you get to you get to live in a high rise but if you're not then you just live in kind of a, a poor you know, low rise apartment or and you have to you have to walk around with the rest of the street dwellers and you don't you don't get to drive flying cars
1: well also just as far as universe building if you're if you're actually privileged there is there's an off world colony right that you can be a part of that you have to like buy like obviously really expensive right. real estate so there's even another layer on top of that that's just mentioned in passing, really. It has nothing to do with the
0: plot that or anything. It does kind of beg the question, though. Don't, wouldn't it be cool to to see more about that off-world colony?
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would be very it cool. Would. Just continuing on the world-building and kind of the chaotic nature of, of L.A. and all the hodgepodge of people that are there, um, this is something that can only be attributed to the theatrical release. Um, but... Harrison Ford's voiceover does go on to uh, divulge some information about uh, more about the people and the language, actually, of L.A., because um, there is there's like a special city speak that that some people use, also known as gutter talk, which is just kind of a mishmash of like Japanese, Spanish, German, just like a whole bunch of languages just based on all this culture and people that are kind of jam packed into this forever staying the same size city
0: that's that's quite a uh it's quite a hodgepodge of languages in there yeah, i didn't know that <laughs> yes <laughs> uh they they don't we don't see too many instances of them actually speaking that do we
2: we hear it i think once in in the voiceover he actually says it to gaff it's right before we learn it gaff speaks gutter talk
0: nice
1: nice I mentioned this I mentioned this a little bit earlier but I also want to bring it back up because I think it ties nicely into into the movie as as a whole but also the the film noir and then what we're talking about right now with the aesthetic is that this music by Vangelis which is basically all synthesizers you know you can think of like mid 80s but rather than thinking of a cheesy like synthesizer sound that you, that you would find on a keyboard today that from you know target it's really really actually complex soundscapes basically is probably what we would call it by today's music standards and just as far as the noir element of it if you can picture this a noir movie from the 50s or 60s that's just like a single trumpet Playing in the background, like almost like soloing or scatting as dialogue is happening, it's just sort of in the background, like really slow, really like somber. Like with a
0: voiceover and everything.
1: Yeah, yep. like with the voiceover. Like like it's been parodied a bunch of times. You, I mean, you can almost picture it just you know just by yep. me explaining it to I'm, you. I'm I'm hopefully. picturing it right now. <laughs> um, but this music this this music by Vangelis does that same thing but also updates it to the time that the movie was released so it doesn't seem out of place it actually fits way better than uh, you know any natural sounding instrument would while accomplishing the same goal and beyond the noir elements of it being there and working with the medium and the inspiration it to me it always it always stood out as like this really aesthetic building thing that you're just watching this universe and it's like something that you're supposed to know but you're really not familiar with because it looks all gross and dirty and dark and raining and everyone is a bad character, sort of. And uh, and this music, this somber jazz music played on a synthesizer, it really hits the message home for me at least. And I think based on, based on the different versions that we watched, it feels like Ridley Scott sort of agreed because it seems like he kept leaving space for the soundtrack to just be with the movie he wasn't trying to force it or do anything crazy with it it was just almost like it was a prop or something like that or its own character some people would say so that's all i got to say about the music is that it fits very yeah, well i think
0: you just completely hit it on the head right i think the way that it's directed and some of the the shots that are taken there there's a good number of really wide and slow pans uh, that just kind of happen over the landscape right. and it you know, if that wasn't enough to already give you a really good sense of 2019 LA vis-a-vis the movie, uh, (laughs) not actual 2019, just putting that Vangelis music over top of it is just so visceral. It really, it really gives the the film kind of this tangible aesthetic to it.
1: Yeah, it's also just thinking about it now, like playing it back, it's like, because it was electronic, it's interesting to think about how the music and the, the sound effects that were made for the movie almost become one. Like if you hear something, you don't know if that's like a car in the background or, or like a siren or something like that in the distance, or if it's just the music playing. And I, and I imagine there's some sort of blending in there of quote-unquote sound effects of non-existent futuristic technology and legitimate music that was, you know, made for this 1982 movie. So that's just interesting to think about.
0: We've talked a lot about the aesthetics. We've really kind of sunk our teeth deep into uh, what makes this a film noir movie, you know, what we liked about the, the future futuristic aspects of it. But we haven't actually talked a ton about the story itself. Elephant in the room. Towards the very end of the movie, there's an, this altercation between a couple of our main characters. Uh, we've got Deckard, who's a Blade Runner, uh, and then we have Roy, who's a replicant, uh, and he's kind of he's kind of the lead replicant out of this this group of hoodlum replicants, if you will, who come back to the home world uh, to really try to figure out. Uh, why it is they expire, and why it is they're not allowed on the home world?
1: Well, also to figure out how to prolong, like not 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 why, but also right how to fix it. Right, right.
0: Um, and so, towards the end of the movie, there's this altercation. The Blade Runner's job, any Blade Runner's job in this universe, is actually to go and track down replicants uh, to retire them. So he was tasked. He was actually kind of dragged out of retirement to track down the specific four replicants. In the final scenes of the movie, we have Deckard, who's chasing Roy down to retire him, and he finds Roy, of course, being a replicant, being a very powerful, very strong one, is is just kind of playing with Deckard. So much so that Deckard's kind of running away from him a little bit in order to make sure that he has the upper hand and in order to properly retire him. And so he finds himself on the roof, and just as he's about to fall, just grabbing on for dear life, Roy comes in and reaches over the edge of the roof and actually saves Deckard. And he brings him back up to the roof and as an audience we're all kind of like puzzled, right? We're, we're kind of shocked um, because there is this, this playful aspect and it, it almost feels like Roy has kind of this bloodlust. He's going to kill Deckard if Deckard doesn't kill him first. And then we get to this moment where what he does at the end of the day is he, he saves him. So I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, why why do we think he saves him?
2: Well, I think this is this and the the monologue that follows it, which we can talk about more in just a minute, are the movie's biggest point in trying to ask the question, do androids dream of electric sheep? which is the original title of Philip K. Dick's book. Essentially being like, hey, are robots people too, if if they have artificial intelligence? And really throughout the film, they don't really talk about this a lot. They don't really go into this very much. We see it a little bit, well, we see it the most, actually, from Roy's perspective for the entirety of the film, but it really doesn't dive that deep into it. It's very surface level throughout the whole thing um, until probably the very end, where we get much more of a stronger hint towards this question, do androids dream of electric sheep? And in my opinion, the whole reason Roy saves Deckard is to kind of demonstrate his ability to not just think like a machine. If he were just a machine, just a machine out for bloodlust, for out for revenge, he would kill Deckard without any hesitation. But instead, he makes the choice, something only really a human can demonstrate, if not maybe even more than human. I mean, even a human in this situation, I mean, Deckard just killed all of his friends, all of his compatriots, a human with just rage and and fire in their eyes would probably just go and kill Deckard without a moment's hesitation but Roy here is proving himself to be human or even more than human by making the choice to save Deckard's life therefore proving himself worthy for that prolonged life he will never receive yeah
0: he's kind of he's kind of showing his humanity in like a like a transcendent humanitarian action right like you said it, even a human would yeah. probably would probably let him fall you know if if Mm -hmm. they were truly out for bloodlust but he kind of he sees past that and he goes no i'm not a robot i want to shake people's expectation of what's going on and and he he does that in a very very visceral way i think i think everyone i I don't know about you two but like everyone is very shocked when that happens in the movie for sure
2: yeah yes
0: so you mentioned a little bit about the monologue that he he delivers after that it's it's just a 42 word monologue um Besides being the answer to life, the universe, and everything, I think the, the f- number 42 is really only significant because okay. it's, it's actually kind of a short monologue, all told. Did you want to talk about that a little bit?
2: For sure. So, do you want me to read the whole monologue, given it's only 42, yeah, or do you want me I, to just kind read of that. summarize it? Go, all right. go for it. So, Roy's monologue. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. That's that's it, right? Yeah. That's that's that's
0: Pretty the whole hard. thing.
1: What what strikes me about that is that I mean, not only is it short, obviously, the first two thirds of it basically are just Describing sci-fi things that are supposed to be horrific, like we can we can just substitute in horrific everyday things that we that we see or, or know about historically. He's basically saying, "I've seen a bunch of stuff that's terrible." You know, those are all going to be lost like tears and rain, which I think is the crux. And then he says, "Time to die," and that's it. That's, that's the whole. That's the whole thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's it's really that they're going to be lost with him, right? Is that he is, you know, the only or one of the few people who has actually seen these things happen. And so when he's gone, that's it. Like, all of those events will almost be as if they were lost with him, no matter how traumatic or... or It is almost the trauma that makes them that impactful, right? If we're to assume that these are major events... Then there are probably lasting side effects. Just like you know, nine eleven will live on in infamy, even if you weren't there. These things will probably still exist, but they'll really they'll exist as very large, kind of opaque artifacts, and will kind of lose all of the nuance and subtlety that come with the human experience of them, or the the android experience, if you will.
1: Yeah, and and I think that speaks to the tears aspect. Like tears are obviously the sun's dump but they're obviously equated to sadness him seeing these horrific things brings a tear to his eye but with him dying those tears that sadness that loss that you know whatever emotional word you want to put to it is is lost with his dying and it leads right up to his time to expire so or or die expire wherever you want to call it
0: retire no i guess it's expire right because decker didn't properly kill him yeah
1: (laughs) Retires murder. I think Deckard's Deckard's position in this is also kind of interesting because, like, you know, he was about to die. He was being chased around by all these androids and you know, life-threatening situations. But he just sort of sits there on top of this building in rain and uh, just listens. You know, he doesn't try. He doesn't try and run anymore. He doesn't try and attack in any sort of way. He's just like, all right, I guess you know, here we are. We're gonna we're gonna do this thing.
2: Well, perhaps that. So I'm just I'm just having a number of thoughts as as you were saying those things. So first and foremost, I think Deckard's probably just in shock that he was saved, just like the audience is. And so it's it's probably more like, all right, I'm obviously maybe not in danger in this situation anymore. So I should just like be chill for a second and listen to what this guy has to say. But on on top of that. It could also contribute to the reason why Roy wanted to save Deckard. On top of it being like a human choice, this is this is Roy's last witness, like yeah. before he is to die. Like this, Deckard will be the only one who will ever like. I mean, it, it's kind of like tears and rain well it's like he's able to have Deckard like metaphorically collect some of those tears before they're (laughs) washed away forever it's like it's like hey this is this is me this is this is like not even a slice of my story but it's at least something I can pass on to you and maybe like I will like as long as someone remembers me just like I remember these events I won't die like for good
0: yeah I also find all of that kind of interesting because the act of actively listening and and hearing someone out properly is is also kind of a, a human element, right? So here we have this Blade Runner whose sole primary job is to retire replicants. And throughout the film, we're kind of given these hints, spoiler alert, I suppose, that Deckard himself could be a replicant. And so in this moment... Where Deckard, instead of fulfilling his what would what we're almost to assume is his robotic duty um as a replicant and a blade runner is to retire this other replicant, but between being in shock and maybe not even knowing that he's a replicant himself or, or maybe he's not a replicant we we still don't really know right that's kind of speaks to the ambiguity of the ending of the movie just kind of sits there and listens, and so just like we see this this moment of of true humanity in roy uh saving deckard and then kind of delivering this monologue we also see like this really genuine moment where throughout the rest of the movie deckard is kind of this hardened blade runner type he's actually just being a listener and he's just just hearing roy out right uh which is actually really human
2: yeah yes
0: really interesting conversation here about, uh, kind of the, the underlying tones of the film. Um, even, you know, I just teased kind of that thematic confusion that we're supposed to be left with on whether or not Deckard is actually a replicant. So, I mean, why, why do we care? This, this movie, you know, we just kind of sung its praises for, for the last 40 minutes. But, uh, you know let's let's hear what let's hear what you have to say about this edward
2: so it's it's really interesting because you asked the question you know if deckard were a replicant if you were an android why would we as an audience care and andrew and i were actually discussing this a little bit earlier um before before the podcast um and the truth is is that as a character we really don't care about him and it's 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 really interesting because as far as you know good films go there's it there's often a, a big combination between plot and character that really intrigues an audience that really allows a movie to have high praise and for this particular film it kind of lacks in both those areas pretty significantly the um the plot is is slow i was actually i was just kind of looking up uh some of the critic responses. and uh, as a joke, the Los Angeles Times in its first release actually called it Blade Crawler um, <laughs> instead of Blade Runner because literally the plot was so slow. it it barely moved the dots that Deckard was connecting sometimes kind of came out of nowhere like with that picture like he was just kind of exploring the picture but like we didn't really know what he was looking for and when he found what he was looking for we didn't really even understand what it is that what he found um it just (laughs) it's it's not anything that's like groundbreaking or intense and the the character of Deckard is not one that we can really connect to emotionally in the theatrical release we get a little bit of of more like three dimensions from him because he 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 talks about his ex-wife we can understand that he's had like past relationships he talks about how much he he hates killing and how much he hates being a Blade Runner and like you know he doesn't want to just murder everyone his entire life. But like we get none of that in the final cut and the director's cut. What we have is is a very blank slate of a character and whether or not it was intentional, it does actually lend to the question of whether Deckard is a replicant. One of the things that he actually mentions in the voiceover, which is just kind of heavy on exposition, but kind of lends to the discussion of this, is that he says that replicants were created to not show emotion, Blade runners were also created to not show emotion. So like in whether whatever huh. training blade runners go through, they are characters that are supposed to be semi emotionless. The only real humanity that we see of Deckard is from his relationship with Rachel where we kind of see that right. he falls in love. Even that relationship feels almost a little awkward um it's kind of robotic just how they kind of end up together and kind of end up in more of this um romantic involvement versus just like this weird platonic friendship that they kind of start off with there's a little bit of like you can feel like a little bit of sexual tension during their first meeting but it's just the way they kind of come together feels a little bit jolted but it still it like in and, and I I know it it sounds weird so it's like out of all this what what makes this a great movie like it's like this this all feels very weird but I think it it has a lot to do with the topic at hand, which is androids. It's androids, it's replicants, It. what makes someone human. And whether subconsciously or whether or not maybe we just love a movie that shouldn't be loved this much, we we feel something when we're watching this. It's like there, there is something weird, there is something awkward, there is something almost lacking in human qualities, but is it because Deckard's a robot? Is it to demonstrate that humans can be just as emotionless as we consider robots to be? <laughs> is it intentional or not? It's it's kind of a question that to be left to the creators of the film, but I think it all it there is there is something there when you watch the film. It's it's not just a boring hodgepodge mess of bad plot and bad character something feels very intentional and it feels like there are questions that need to be answered as you're watching
0: yeah i really like too that you you really spoke to the evocative nature of the film i I think there there is something and we talked a lot about kind of the aesthetics of the movie uh, and so i think this will come as no surprise but i think aesthetically the movie is evocative and it and it's supposed to kind of show you your own humanity in a way Maybe you can't identify with the characters, and maybe that is kind of the point in having having them characterized that way. But you can identify with some of the positions they're in, and you can kind of identify with the the world building in 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 kind of a way that like, you know, you don't see yourself as the world, or you don't necessarily see yourself in the world, but like you kind of feel like you could be there.
1: Yeah. Really quickly, the the I had a bunch of sorry while <laughs> you were talking, but um, I think. uh the two things that I thought of just to flex my quote unquote movie knowledge here is just as far as a plot is concerned and like moving really slowly and being really like clunky in comparison. Like we know how plots work. Um, but a movie that comes to mind is star Wars episode four. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this, but whatever. (laughs) Um, episode four, like the plot is so weird. There's like three things that happen in that movie. It's like they, we get to Tatooine, they go to Moss Eisley and then like the rest of it takes place in the death Star and then like the one flight scene at the end it's really quickly and like unevenly paced but unlike Blade Runner like there's a lot of humanity in that movie and we enjoy a lot of the characters so like the plot isn't as the the, the lacking of the plot isn't as noticeable in that one uh, as it is maybe in maybe in Blade Runner where people call it boring and you know fall asleep and whatnot uh, and then the other movie that I was thinking of, just to speak of like him being an android and maybe not showing as much emotion the movie i thought of was 2001 because hal 9000 in that movie the way that he was written is to show more emotion than the two humans that are overseeing that operation they were supposed to act very dully very flat like not respond to anything emotionally and then Hal, when he's you know quote unquote murdered, um, it's like it's like a weirdly sad scene, and there's just like a lot of different parts to it, and it's because we're supposed to, or, or it's created to make us question like why do we feel more for Hal nine thousand an explicit computer versus these two human beings who are our own flesh and blood basically. So it I mean it, it asks a similar question, but I think Blade Runner is a lot more fun way to to do it as far as like you're following this character that is is introduced to you as you know you you identify as flesh and blood but then you get these you know dream sequences and ambiguity and you know the acting isn't quite like like we're used to from Harrison Ford and it's it's it just begs all these questions and I think it yeah I think you're right I think unlike maybe other movies that like are in the sci-fi genre like the the I think the big draw of this movie is just leaving you with questions that maybe you didn't think of before you watched the movie as far as humanity and what makes a human and how to push technology and what that means and what that can do and how we respond to it and all that stuff
0: nice yeah I i really like those those summaries you know not, not to toot my own horn I know I gave my own summary um Awesome. Well, so uh, I think this has just been a super fascinating hour, kind of discussing this movie that we that we're all really passionate about. Do either of you have any closing thoughts, Andrew? Let's start with you.
1: Not too much that I haven't said before. I think it's it's. Just, I think I always kind of laugh when someone says this movie this movie is boring. I know a lot of people who have said that, and I can't I can't disagree with them. There are times when this movie is boring and doesn't quite work, but. I think it's it's garnered an audience that that loves it and uh, obviously enough to make a sequel uh, which maybe we'll do a podcast about later. but it's interesting how interesting a boring
0: movie can be. Yeah well said. Yeah. Edward.
2: so just kind of uh, jumping off on what Andy said it's it, it is interesting how many boring things go down in history um, as being, like, classics. We have Blade Runner and we have, like, Moby Dick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think what's really just kind of interesting about both those things is that they, Blade Runner, just speaking about Blade Runner specifically, it's, it is, you know, I, I can't argue against the fact that it's boring, just like Andy said, but it asks questions. There's definitely a lot to unpack. From the aesthetic to the subject matter of the film, what makes someone human, what what are we to judge others based off of. I, I do personally agree with people who say it is a boring movie. I do find myself sometimes drifting when watching it, but I am always brought back into the film by its aesthetics, by its score, and by just its tone and subject matter.
0: Well said. I like the way that you said that for sure. Well, with that, um, this has been... An, a great episode. Thank you both for uh, for joining me and, and having this conversation. Of course. Um, I'm I'm your hostess with the mostest, Jacob Meixner. Andrew Meixner, resident composer.
2: And I'm Edward Prunley, our resident writer.
0: Thank you all for joining us. Bye. Bye.
2: Goodbye.